to episode 278 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with Dylan Moore, Michael O'Malley, Ash Baker. And in today's episode, we will be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we will be continuing our best of the decade series with the year 2017. Uh, but let's go ahead and jump into movies that we saw this week. Um, Michael, I'm going to kick it off with you. You caught the latest movie from Richard Linklater, who we talked a little bit about a couple weeks ago. But I don't think anybody realized that Richard Linklater came out with a movie this year. So uh, it take it away. definitely flew under some radars. Uh, this is Where'd You Go, Bernadette, which is apparently based on a novel, um, which I've not read. Um, but what... Richard Linklater is like kind of like this interesting guy in a lot of ways, but as a as a figure in like a film discourse, because like he's definitely like a lot of people consider him like an important director, right? You know, like uh, you know, the same school as like Quentin Tarantino and Steven Soderbergh or whatever. But I feel like kind of unique among a lot of like what we would call like important directors is that he's completely content with releasing movies that are not important. You know, so he does have his big movies, like the before movies and like uh, um, Boyhood and things like that. But then he's also got like me and Orson Welles or uh, or, uh, for example, this movie, Where'd You Go, Bernadette, which is like resolutely a movie that is like small scale, like um, not particularly I don't think anyone making this movie thought this was going to be like a great movie. Um, It's like basically um, that kind of, it's, it's like a family dramedy, essentially, um, in which, uh, Kate Blanchett plays this former, like, retired architect who is living with her husband, um, who is, like, a tech guy, um, he, he's, like, developing a, uh, like a home, like, Google Home, basically, um, whatever, uh, the non-union equivalent of that is, um, and uh, it's basically about, like, her descent into, not exactly mental illness, although that does come up, but, like, her descent into, like, discontent, being discontent with her life, um, which she is the entire movie, but eventually she's moved to action by it and, like, kind of runs away and goes on this, like, kind of fanciful quest uh, or journey, um, which is where the title comes from, because they don't know where she went. They don't know where Bernadette went. Um I think a more apt title would have been instead of boyhood, adulthood. Uh, mm. uh, <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you been sitting on but that? Anyway, I will see. <laughs> I will see like, myself okay. out. Bye. At any rate, uh, I think on Letterboxd I compared this movie to like We Bought a Zoo, and that it's like that kind of movie where it's like. Never gets, like, extremely serious, but it's not really, like, a comedy either. You're just kind of watching, like, low-stakes uh, family hijinks and and dramatic, like, kind of soft dramatic stuff play out. Um, and it's really interesting that Linklater makes movies like this, and I really like the idea that he makes movies like this. Um, Where'd You Go, Bernadette is fine, as you would expect of a movie like I just described, like We Bought a Zoo or something, which is, like... I don't think people will remember it for very long and it accomplishes what it tries to accomplish, which is to be like mildly pleasant for like, you know, a hundred minutes and give actors some material to like give some kind of good performances with like Kate Blanchett's very good. Um, for example, as Bernadette and, um, 
I mean, that, that's about it. I mean, I think the reason people aren't talking about this movie is that there's not a ton to talk about and it's kind of designed as, as such, um, which I think in and of itself is interesting because that people talk about this kind of movie disappearing, right? Like the mid-budget, you know, movies for adults or, or whatever, you know, um, there's no uh, gimmick, there's no like, uh, you know, hook beyond just like a kind of uh, middle brow, you know, a dramedy, you know, that you could, you know, take your parents to and have a kind of enjoyable evening, um, out. And like, I feel like I'm really damning with faint praise. Um, it's, it's a good movie. Uh, it's just not one that I think would inspire strong feelings for anyone. Um, so maybe that means no one's going to see it. <laughs> uh, um, I mean, and just to your point though, Michael, I mean, it does seem like a potentially a sad thing then that, you know, I don't know how, how many handfuls of filmmakers then would be able to get that kind of budget then for something that is called just a mid-sized adult movie, right? And so somebody like Linklater can get away with it without much of a problem. I mean, he's already, a, as you say, kind of an eclectic filmmaker himself, so it shouldn't be too surprising. But Yeah, and I mean, maybe you know, that is... I mean, the... I guess a lot of that stuff now gets moved on to Netflix, right? Right, and maybe that is the bigger point, is that someone like Linklater, who has this clout and prestige surrounding him, mm-hmm. is someone who can, is the person who can do this sort of movie, um, you know, and get, like, Kate Blanchett attached to it and things like that. Um, right, right. Without it being, like, really stake without staking his reputation on it, you know, if this were your mm-hmm. debut feature, and um, I think this For movie sure. lost money, in fact, um, you know, it, it would be, you know, some just yet another moral for you know here's why we don't have you know mid-budget adult <laughs> movies anymore uh-huh. but with link later attached to it it just is another one of his weird idiosyncratic releases that he does in between the releases that make people remember that oh yeah richard link is great um <laughs> and like i said <laughs> yeah, I, I, I really dig that he has no sort of uh pretense about like what kind of movies he has to make you know that it just is a movie that i don't know if he just found a muse in it or or what but there's you know nothing really special about this movie except he just got down and collaborated with a bunch of people who he seems to enjoy and and did mm-hmm. it and you know like a bunch of the movies that he makes that are kind of in that style like it's not super memorable but it's also got this kind of baseline just um affability and appeal to it that i think is like underappreciated and sounds exactly like Linklater as a persona. So there yeah. you go. So Makes sense. where'd you go, Bernadette? Or uh, as Zach would call it. <laughs> adulthood. No. Adulthood. <laughs> yeah. You're welcome. Maybe, you know, maybe it's a naming thing. Maybe that's why people didn't, you know, who knows? We well, don't know so the these... Irishman. Yeah, the sequel to. The uh-huh. Irishman was called, you know, I heard you paint houses, right? Well, so Bernadette is a designer uh, of houses. Uh, I heard you design houses. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the trilogy. The trilogy. Wait, what's the other movie in the trilogy? I can't. <laughs> um, Boyhood. I'll think of it. Irishman? <laughs> what? Okay, Zach. So uh, transitioning uh, from that, uh, let's, uh, let's move to... Um, I'm trying to see if Mary Poppins has anything related to houses. Uh, yeah, aren't they about to Mary... lose their house? Don't they? Yes. It's, a, it's about wow. a house. There you go. So Found you it. have, I yeah. paint houses, I design houses, and I lose houses. Ash, tell <laughs> us about Mary Poppins Returns. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'm, um, 
I'm visiting my parents and it's very difficult to sort of agree on anything to watch <coughs> as a family. And um, so we watched Mary. Was, ha- was Handmaid a no-go? Handmaid was a no-go. <laughs> oh, <that's laughs> a no-go for sure. Um, so uh, we watched Mary Poppins Returns the other night. Um, all, all agreed upon Mary Poppins Returns. Um, and, you know, much like I imagine Where'd You Go Bernadette, it was a movie. It was fine. Mm. Um, there were parts of it that, like, because I'm a huge fan of, like, original Mary Poppins. It was, like, very good as a kid, you know? Um you know, Dick Van Dyke flopping around, you know, with his, <laughs> with his long limbs and, you know, the penguins and stuff. And so I was, I sort of went in, you know, a little skeptical and, but it, it, there were parts of it that were just like genuinely good. Like, um, I think Emily Blunt, um, her performance was good. She, uh, she, she kind of had that, you know, little sass going on that little Mary Poppins sass. Lin-Manuel Miranda played sort of like the dirt boy opposite of, uh, um, of Mary Poppins. Um, Is that what we call the chimney sweeps now? <laughs> the dirt boys. <laughs> he wasn't a chimney sweep. He was He's the same a, type um, of character, though. What, yeah, what, it's what the same type of character. He's like the remember. working man. He's called a leery. He's the lamplighter. Um, ah. So he lights. Sadly replaced by automation. Yeah, yeah. He he lights the street lamps and puts them out um, by morning and evening. And um, so he's always just around with like some grease smeared on his face. Um, and he has a what do you call it? Like a Cogni accent. Um, and it's not very good. That's like the yeah. It's, like it's the... not a very good. It, like he's one of the few actual American people like playing a part, and they and it's like a really over the top accent. It's. Do you um, feel like that? That's like a reference to Dick Van Dyke's accent in the original. Because I think I, I kind know, of feel like Dick Van Dyke's accent is like notorious for like what not to do with an accent in the original. It it could be. I didn't think about that, but now that you say that, it could be. Um, I just feel like if we're thinking about Lin-Manuel Miranda as a replacement for Dick Van Dyke, we shouldn't. Um, obviously, he's a really talented film, or not filmmaker, uh, songwriter. You know, like he wrote, you know, the songs and stuff, which are good, by the way. I did enjoy the new songs in the, some more than others, but um, the songs in the musical are are good. But um, he's kind of just like a, a kind of a clumsy guy, you know, like he, do, he can't dance very well. And uh, so he's like doing a lot of dance numbers and he just kind of like stumbles around a lot. But, you know, Love Lynn Manuel Miranda. He's fine. Um, overall, thought the movie was good. There's just like the it sort of goes back and forth between um, being like um, like really cheesy 
like British kids movie into being like like yes like this is my sweet spot this is what I want to watch and then just being like ridiculous over the top so like um you have like some just like kids movie silliness but then you have like a moment that will genuinely like make you smile like there's a cameo by Dick Van Dyke that just like made my heart sing and I felt so warm inside because Dick Van Dyke came out and flopped his limbs around and um, (laughs) (laughs) it's just he's just I love him so much he's so good and he's so old and he's still got it um but then yeah and um and there's some songs that are just so good and just on point um But then, you know, like, we end the movie, like, I wish the movie had ended, I felt, like, emotionally done with the movie, um, like, after the scene where Dick Van Dyke shows up, it's towards the end, but then, to spoil the ending for everyone, there's, the actual ending of the movie happens after everyone in the entire cast is, like, lifted up into the sky by helium balloons and it's just yeah. like why as you why do. is everyone <laughs> yeah as you do so it's like i don't I, like i was emotionally done after dick van dyke left the screen and like i don't really need this like happy like um revival of an earlier song as the cast is floating through the sky on helium balloons, really. Um, I think you're forgetting the best part where the... Uh, <laughs> oh, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. They go, let's go fly a kite before they do this, don't they? Isn't that like a line? <laughs> I remember really rolling my eyes hard at, at that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was before Dick Van Dyke shows up, but yeah. Oh, was they, it? Okay. <laughs> um, the whole concept is um, the adults in the movie were the children in the original Mary Poppins movie, which I kind of thought was gimmicky, but you know, it's fine. It's like, um, Ben Wishaw our wholesome British King love him. Um, but, um, I think the best part as Michael, you and I were talking about, um, earlier is that they do bring back the animated sequence as in the um, first Mary Poppins movie. And this one is just absolutely wild and trippy. So instead of jumping into a um, sidewalk drawing, they jump onto a ceramic bowl and that's painted. And so they're inside the painting on a ceramic bowl and they're going around the curves on the bowl and meeting all sorts of characters who um have all sorts of motives some good some evil it's it's very incredible and i sort of felt like i was on drugs watching they also um, perform a burlesque show while they're in the bowl There is a burlesque show while they're in the bowl, um, which is really good. Um, I enjoyed. <laughs> I, I enjoyed the, uh, the. I enjoyed that whole thing. That was my favorite um, Lin Manuel moment in the uh, movie. Probably he was he was great on the stage, um, 
Yeah. Uh, also, Meryl Streep makes an appearance. Wasn't wild about her um, character. They kind of had her dressed up like a uh, like a fortune teller lady. She had like a Russian accent or something. Um, just oh. uh, kind of just kind of <laughs> dove into silliness. I don't know, but um, very interesting movie. Um, definitely fun. Definitely entertaining. Definitely watch with your kids. Um, maybe you know, just have a good time. Sing along. Chill out. Watch Mary Poppins Returns. It's free on Amazon Prime. <laughs> no, no, it's free on Netflix, not Amazon Prime. You have to pay on Amazon Prime. Is it really? Prime. I would have guessed yeah. it would have been locked in Disney+. Plus. Well, it's on there too, I guess, if you'd like to see it. Um, oh, well, it's on Netflix as well. And I'll just specify that you, that you have to have a subscription, so it's not free on Netflix. <laughs> well, it's free if you steal someone's Thanks, password Zach. for Netflix. There we go. No one right. pay for Netflix. Hell yeah. All right, let's do it. We, that's how we like to, to transition it. Um, Into marriage story? That's true. <laughs> no, <joking>. Wow. <laughs> no, we're not going to transition in the marriage story. It's on you, buddy. Light from light. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. Okay. Thank you, Zach. Uh, so I had the opportunity... Um, Last Friday, um, Paul Harrell's recent movie, uh, Life from Light, he actually came down from Knoxville to the Belcourt to show it. Um, he brought his archival or print, 35mm print for archival purposes, but he actually brought it to show it. Uh, and so that was a neat experience. I, I have questions about that of uh, that I wasn't able to ask because there was only a short discussion after you know, him actually shooting it on film, therefore, you know, making that a sensible option. Uh, or if it was shot digitally and he just liked the feel for 35 millimeter print. But, um, but that was a really neat experience for him to bring it down. And I do think the movies, uh, which Andrew and Darren talked about a couple weeks ago, right? That was, that was just, uh, two episodes ago. Zach, something like that. Yes. Um, so, I mean, I just kind of want to like, insert a little bit and you can just go back and listen to them talk about it because I think they do a solid um, solid job getting to parts of the movie but um, if you have the opportunity I, I do think it does have like a really nice cohesive atmosphere that makes it lends itself well to seeing it in a theater space um, you know a big thing that resonates in the movie as like a ghost story and keeping its atmosphere together are both the, the shots kind of more like a B-roll of the foggy early morning Smoky Mountains, right? And then the music coming in that's just really ambient and like breathes a kind of a, a slow lingering sense of everything. Um, and so I feel like that that, that would really lend itself well uh, to seeing it kind of surrounded in a theater space. But um Sadly, I'm not really sure how long. I think it's only going to be at the Belcourt, for instance, for another two days. And then, you know, all the more Hollywood, uh, holiday movies are coming in. So I might not be able to stick stick around longer than that. But if you do have a chance to catch it, um, I would I would 
recommend it for sure. Um, and uh, just like as another another bit of business about this movie that I wasn't uh, able to ask about, but I'm interested in, is, I mean, we talked about something. Anything is kind of like a, um, a spiritual movie, and this one definitely is too. But something that wasn't brought up at the end or really talked about in their discussion in the couple weeks ago between uh, Andrew and Darren. Nor was it really much focused on in the movie, but I was surprised at the very, very end during the credit sequence, uh, there is a bit of the Heart Sutra, a Buddhist text that gets referenced at the end. And I'm not really 100% sure why. I mean, the main specific text that gets brought up in the movie itself is Anna Karenina that kind of like culminates in this very um, effective kind of uh, moving excerpt that gets read out loud from that book. Um, but in this case, uh, is a phrase from the Heart Sutra that's that's just a part of it, but is usually a thing that I think gets uh, referenced a lot as uh, evocative. And I'm not really sure what to make of that. I don't know uh, Paul Harrell much or much of his religious views outside of his movies, so I just didn't expect that to be in there. So, um, but that was a it was a neat experience and. Um, Couldn't couldn't recommend it enough. It's a tight eighty-two minutes, so it's not uh, not too much of a not too much of a ask like some of the other movies uh, that are out now. And it's uh, right the lead, uh, Marin Ireland and Jim Gaffigan, uh, and the way they photograph Jim Gaffigan is uh, <laughs> pretty pretty moving, considering. And I think uh, one of the main takeaways from the from that discussion after is how surprised everybody was that A, Jim Gaffigan agreed to be in that movie in terms of like his persona uh, and how people usually would receive him as a stand-up comedian. And for him to actually pull it off uh, was a nice surprise. And Marin Island kind of carries the core of the movie. And um, I was surprised that I actually recognized her f- uh, from The Irishman. Uh, she plays one of the daughter, uh, older daughter characters, of Frank, in the movie that we see right at the very end. And I was just... Surprised to connect, make all these connections. And um, another uh, last bit of trivia, though, uh, and, and another thing I would like to ask about. So you're yeah, saying, what's up, on, man? Yeah, so go on. for it. So are you saying uh-huh. Please. that Light from Light is I haunt houses? <laughs> damn it! Heck, yes, fine, true. It's damn it. Oh, good. I heard you haunt houses. I heard you haunt houses. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did it, Zach. I don't know what we can give you, but you did it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but just the last bit of trivia before uh, uh, we move on is uh, I was surprised to see that uh, both the editor and cinematographer of the movie, uh, the cinematographer Greta Zuzula and the editor Courtney Ware, both did those respective roles in uh, Never Going Back. I don't I don't know what to make of that. That was that comedy that. Uh, that we liked a couple years back, or that was just last year, right? Uh, so I don't know how those, you know, friend of a friend connections happened, but that's uh, funny for me to imagine considering how ridiculous that movie is. So uh, go figure. But Life from Light. Oh. Good movie. Life from Light. Would recommend. I, I heard you haunt houses. <laughs> Alternate yeah. title, aka. <laughs> um. 
so I want to talk real quickly about uh, a movie I caught this past weekend. It is uh, The Mortal Storm, the 1940 Frank Borzaghi mm-hmm. movie. Is that how you say his name? Yeah. Borzaghi. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew I was I knew I got it wrong. Uh starts Jimmy Stewart and Margaret Sullivan and it's kind of a would be a nice uh double feature compliment to Terrence Malick's A Hidden Life that came out this year. Oh yeah. Um kind of yeah, kind of dealing with similar uh themes there, but this one came out in you know in 1940. Uh, a real quick little history lesson: it uh, reportedly was the reason why the Nazi government banned all MGM productions wow. <laughs> in their occupying regions because uh, Goebbels and Hitler did, were not fans of the Mortal Storm, as one would assume. <laughs> um, so the movie is a is about the uh, the Roth family. Uh, Margaret Sullivan is the daughter in it. Uh, Frank Morgan, who you saw with the two main actors um, in Shop Around the Corner, oh, yeah. uh, plays the kind of patriarch of the family. He's a uh, accomplished professor at the local university, um, teaching like chemistry or something along along that nature, and it, at the beginning of the movie, he's celebrating his sixtieth uh, birthday. And he has like this whole kind of there's like this whole drawn out sequence to, to begin the movie where uh, it's kind of everybody is pretending like they don't remember that it's his birthday and he uh, is trying to like play it off. And then they have like this big reveal in the classroom where all of the his students and peers and family are there to like celebrate the moment for him. Uh and then he, then uh, you know, he he's like really touched by the the gesture by his two favorite students, played by uh, I think it's Robert Young and and then James Stewart, and uh, then it, it cuts to uh, later in the evening they're having like this lar- this dinner with kind of the f- friends and family, and he gives this kind of long speech about um, the work that he's done and how. It's such a, it's such like an old movie like technique. I love it where he's just like giving this long speech about how uh, they're all together, and they'll always you know have that strength within within this bond. And you're just like, well, that's gonna break in like five <laughs> minutes because <that's laughs> wow, he's, he just has this really like seven minute long monologue about how uh, strong the uh, connections were, um, not foreboding or anything. No, it's not because literally two minutes after he finishes, the radio cuts on and they're announcing uh, Hitler's rise to power and in, in the German government. Um, and so, a number of the people at the party, including the character played by Robert Young, who is uh, engaged to Mar- Margaret Sullivan's character, uh, are excited and and um, charged up by the by the news that, that the Nazis are coming into power, and. Um, the uh, Mr. Roth, uh, along with his wife and Margaret Sullivan's character and Jimmy Stewart, are all kind of passive to the to the news. They kind of sit down. Uh, one of the friends, you know, asking Jimmy Stewart's character, like, "Why are you not like excited about this? This is good for Germany. This is gonna, you know, get the kind of the, bring the country back up again." Um, and Jimmy Stewart's just like, "No." <laughs> 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 and his be- and just a thick German accent, you know. Um, <laughs> it's just uh, and so for the rest of the movie, it's 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 uh, a lot about um, 
well, it kind of divulges into the, the, the Nazis are, are, you know, becoming stronger and stronger. It's beginning to di- divide the family. Um, you have uh, wait, Jimmy wait, Stewart's wait, wait. character. I heard you divide houses. No. Uh, <laughs> Michael. Hey. We got it, baby. Um, I knew there was a thread here somewhere. And, okay. I know. It, it kind of, and then it culminates into... Um, I'm 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 saying this right now. We're recording. I'm, I'm saying I'm talking about this all right now. As oh the uh, the the president is the third U.S. president to be impeached after the House votes on it. Um, it feels weird. Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, it, all of this kind of culminates in this moment where uh, Jimmy Stewart and his friends are at a bar. Uh, they're just kind of hanging out. Jimmy Stewart has kind of avoided them since the whole dinner incident. But Margaret Sullivan's character kind of kind of convinces him to come back and, and hang out, and so they're they're hanging out naturally. Like they have to, to shift the the talk into a more political sphere. And uh, at that time, these other Nazi members in the uh, in the bar begin singing uh, the you know an anthem, and everybody in the bar for the most part is standing up outside of like Jimmy Stewart, and Margaret Sullivan, and then uh, an older gentleman who is uh, who we see a little bit earlier earlier as this um, school teacher that, that Jimmy Stewart's character knows and the some of the Nazi uh, leadership at the front begin to kind of push him and shove him and berate him for not standing up and taking part in the anthem uh, and so Jimmy Stewart kind of intervenes and takes him out of the out of the bar um, but later on of course the Nazis start beating up the old man and so he takes him back to his house and uh Jimmy Stewart has a couple other run-ins where Margaret Sullivan is kind of her character is dealing with whether or not she wants to continue the um, continue the engagement with Robert Young's character, who is uh, rising the rank the local ranks of the Nazi Party in this in this German town, while um, Jimmy Stewart is is being is constantly being uh, picked on by by the Nazis. He has one you know, skiff where he gets into a, a fight with them and eventually he he uh, meets back up with this older gentleman the who, who got in the fight after the bar who wants to escape into Austria and so he takes him there and then, then the movie kind of shifts to mainly focusing on Margaret Sullivan's character and, and her relationship with her family because the father um, starts to uh, who um, they don't say explicitly because this is you know code era but uh, is, is Jewish and I forgot they just well I don't think they say anything they just say he, they just refer to him as non Aryan <laughs> um, but you have him, you have him in the in the and the mother who uh, are both opposed to the Nazi rise, but then you have two of their sons who are rising within the, the Nazi party there in town um, who decide to leave home after uh, Jimmy Stewart's character is seen coming out of their house. And so you shift to kind of what the duties for Margaret Sullivan's characters are uh, of, you know, her father ends up being imprisoned and dies. Uh, her mom and her, the, and the younger brother, they try to escape into Austria, but are stopped. And she, and Margaret Sullivan gets off the, the train and is held because she's trying to take her father's last bit of work into Austria with them. Um, but she's stopped by, of course, Nazi guards and it kind of, it culminates in this, uh, this kind of, uh, really 
just kind of a it, it's a great sequence but it's just such a, uh, a kind of strange but also like largely set sequence where it's where Jimmy Stewart comes back to the German town to, to take her with him to Austria um, and they're gonna get married and then but then uh, the you know Nazis find out what they're doing and send pretty much everybody that knows Jimmy Stewart and Margaret Sullivan from this town to go and take them out. Um, and it ends, uh, very much in tragedy. I, uh, one quick note about the Nazis, like who are in this town. One, it's all of these like Hollywood, mm-hmm. uh, character actors that you've run into. I mean, <laughs> if you've seen any, yep. uh, if you've seen any Please. John Ford uh-huh. movies, you probably, you probably seen <laughs> Ward Bond. <laughs> Where Ward Bond plays a Nazi and it's you know, hilarious because Ward Bond is the most like, like he doesn't. If Jimmy Stewart doesn't sound German, Ward Bond is definitely not German. Then again, you know, considering who he plays in some of those movies, well, he could he could do that. He's a you know. Yeah, no, it it, it was just more comical yeah. to have Ward Bond oh, yeah. show up as like the, he's just like I'm the Nazi. <laughs> I believe <laughs> you. Like okay, God. Um, but. Honestly, you know, I mentioned that I, I kind of compare this. This would be a wonderful double feature with A Hidden Life um, because it's very, it's kind of dealing with the same thing. It's dealing with how uh, the rise of Nazism, um, especially in terms of like how it was rising less in kind of the grander scheme of Germany, but more in like the the small villages setting, um, which is something that Hidden Life deals with also, and how it how the rise of Nazism was very much based on this on a lot of. Uh, just a lot of anxiety about the state of the country and where uh like society was progressing i mean this is this is a very rural um you know kind of agrarian town that they live in they but they have also this you know university that the father's teaching at that is you know teaching chemistry and is like is trying to kind of progress the uh the the whole narrative of the one of the reasons why he uh kind of gets listed by the nazis is because there's this um class one this class that he's teaching and they're asking if he if you can tell uh the difference in blood uh you know lesser or better between aryan blood and non-aryan blood and he's just like no it's science they're all the same like it doesn't that doesn't make any sense and um so it's just kind of this fight against it's this anxiety toward modernity and this anxiety toward um just the general state of germany in post-world war one where they were pretty much uh stripped of everything and ravaged and so naturally so anything that they could latch on to to kind of regain any sort of um <laughs> any sort of power or any or any sort of dignity they were going to do but mainly i think it's more interesting in kind of this small village setting similar to hidden life because it's these people who aren't coming in contact with a lot of um the larger modern riches you know they're not in berlin they're not mm-hmm. in paris they're not in new york they're not in these places where they're going to be coming in contact with a lot of modernity and uh i th- at least to me, I think I I just find it interesting to watch kind of the how that threat of um, the progression of time really influences uh, a lot of their decision making. Um, I mean, a, um, for the a lot of the people, you know, that that a lot of the people, especially like in Hidden Life, they're just they just react to kind of this uh, almost. Uh, this unseeable force because you never really see like 
the physical rise of the Nazis or the physical or any of the kind of physical um, like tools that are being built that would kind of show this this uh, rising in technology. But at the same time, they have, uh, you know, newsreels and they have these other ways that they're kind of seeing it. And because they don't understand it, they immediately rebel against it. It's just kind of like this very basic primal human function. And I, I think that the mortal storm kind of understands that. I mean, um, I, I really like this, uh, this, uh, this piece from 1997 by Kent Jones. And he says, in Nazism Borzegi, uh, finally recognized the formidable enemy of love, adding more than poverty, more than war in the abstract, more than physical separation or even death. The phenomenon of Nazism posed a real danger to love because it threatened to overshadow and replace it with a man-made negative paternalism. Um, and it's just kind of un- examining Nazism less um, through just kind of this basic lens that we have and, and looking at it more in this kind of uh, tribal humanistic way where like I, to, to me I can understand why a small village like that would react in that way at this period of time just because they don't they just unfortunately because they don't have anything else to latch on to in terms of um, reference points like all of this being thrown together at once uh, just kind of overloads them and that and they react but then at the same time you have these uh, people like the Margaret Sullivan and James Stewart and Frank Morgan characters that um, of course see through it um, and so overall I think it's I think it really is incredibly interesting and I think it it understands Nazism at a uh, especially early on and says something interesting about why we got to this point at that at that period of history more than a lot of other movies um around this period of time and especially in response to uh the rise of hitler and, and the nazis so i would recommend checking out mortal storm i had a tour in it yeah. but uh if you maybe wanna, the library if you, the library if you Oops. yeah i would ch- i would check mm-hmm. out the library or something it pops up on uh on tcm right. a bunch as well um yeah, no, it's 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 really I think it's really interesting and really good. Um, uh, I have a, I have a, and you can get past Jimmy Stewart's uh, <laughs> poor, poor lack German of accent. a Bavarian uh, accent. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I, have a, I have a question though, uh, Zach. Does um does the university kind of replace the the church in Mortal Storm compared to Hidden Life? Because uh, I mean, Hidden Life doesn't have that university setting, um, but they're both sure, small, yeah. you know, rural Bavarian towns. But uh, I don't remember. Uh, really, uh, religion or church being used in that same way in a mortal storm? No, mortal storm kind of keeps everything on on, on the level. Yeah. Uh, I think hidden life, you know, because yeah. Malik is so natural at kind of broadening his scope. Uh, it, it it like I think it's it's doing that for sure. But mortal storm, yeah. I think it's much more. It's much more straightforward, but at this, yeah. I also felt like it, it captures that, like I like I was mentioning, like this a similar thesis in a way that's still mm-hmm. really interesting. Right, sure. Because again, this, I mean, it came out in 1940, um, and a lot of more contemporary. Yeah, yeah. exactly, and a lot of. Um, and a lot of movies that were kind of dealing with this were either kind of 
you know, like Chaplin's The Great Dictator, which is a spoof that doesn't even, that's of course referencing the Nazis, but is not using like mm-hmm. the Nazi symbols and, um, and names and, and stuff like that. You have a lot of that where it's like they're making a comment, but not directly using the Nazis. Yeah. Um, or And it takes you, until, yeah, to be or not to be before. And that's like two years after this, right? Yeah, exactly. Or, or, or I'm thinking of like something like Casablanca, which oh, um, yeah, sure. is, is like, it's much more looking at it through like the American perspective and like the isolationism mm-hmm. of, of America at that point in time and so that's that, at least at least at this period of time that's what movies were trying to say about like the rise of Nazis is they're either either filtering it through let's just lampoon them or let's filter mm-hmm. it through like kind of charge up America to get America involved and so this one I, I I found more impressive just because it was much more straightforward in examining like something that felt yeah. uh, relevant. And uh, I mean, a lot like other Brzezigi's other movies, uh, it is it is definitely a melodrama, and it'll leave you with a certain sense of loss that uh, that he's good at conjuring up. Uh, yeah. So, and I think that that's <laughs> perfect though for like this because yeah. I mean, you have this whole this the Nazi plot is so. Uh, is like the main one but you also kind of have like mm-hmm. this side subplot love story between Margaret Sullivan and Jimmy Stewart's characters that is I think that you can kind of look at it as being kind of you know uh, inconsequential to the greater threat that's happening at that point in time but at the same time like it pays off by that by the end like the last mm-hmm. the last you know 15 20 minutes of the movie like it it's worth having that kind of build up of the relationship and the love between them uh it's also worth noting that like jimmy stewart was like super hardcore in love with margaret sullivan in real life so well there you go yeah that helps <laughs> uh but yeah mortal storm check it out f- try to find it um we're gonna take a short break and then we will be back talking the year 2017 after this Hey, Cinematary listeners, Andrew here. During this break in the show, I'd like to mention that Cinematary does want your money. You can give us your money at patreon.com slash cinematary, where you can chip in a small fee of about $5 a month, you know, the price of a fancy coffee, in exchange for shout-outs in every episode, the opportunity to choose movies we cover on the show, and bonus episodes every month in which we talk about more movies as well as other miscellaneous stuff. In the past, we've just been humbly asking for you to share the show and engage with us, and we would still love for you to do those things. You can tweet us at Cinematary, send us an email, uh, Z-A-C-H at Cinematary.com, leave us a review on iTunes, all that stuff. But Cemetery has grown a ton in the past few years due to the hard work of a bunch of writers, myself included, who haven't been paid for their labor, which is sadly a pretty normal thing. We record things and write things for free, you listen to and read them for free, and the only people getting paid are like Apple and Google, which is depressing. So if you appreciate what we do, if you feel like there's some sort of value being exchanged here and you'd like more of it, help us normalize paying people by going to patreon.com slash cinematary and chipping in $5 a month. We would truly appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the show.
are back with part two of episode 278 of Cinematary. In this part, we will be continuing our best of the decade series with the year 2017. Uh, so I got a host of topics, then we might hit on a couple single movies. Um, <laughs> the first, um, I guess let's just dig into it because let, let me just preface that we've already been talking about it for probably 10 minutes off mic. Oh, gosh. So we might as well just bring it to the recording side. Um, this uh, 2017 yeah. was the year that Twin Peaks: The Return came out. Um, we had, of course, the uh, the movies or TV episode of Cinematary, which I feel like is still held over my head. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I can't deny that I was laying on the floor just like groaning, like like, like Tina from Bob's Burgers, just like uh, <laughs> like the, like the entire time. Um, but I, I want to make an argument that Bob's Burgers is in fact the best movie. Of the oh, that's good too. I like that oh, as wow. well. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I kind of want to just now let's go, we got to keep it kind of tight because we can't go the entire episode like yeah. we did last time. But nope. I, 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 I do want to talk a, a little bit about like the delineation between movies and television, not just from Twin Peaks: The Return and kind of why that kind of had its its moment where people were were you know re- relating it to that, but also because I think mm-hmm. that. Uh, both, and, and I think we can make this point that both movies and TV have like tried to emulate the other ones. I mean, so before we, I, I break this up to everybody. I mean, on the movie side, you can look at something like what Marvel's doing, where they literally have episodic movies that you have to watch in order to understand what happens in the, you know, in the Avengers one. Like I feel like you have that to an extent where it's playing with this narrative structure of of episodic storytelling. And on the TV side, it seems like they've, you know, made these, uh, you know, lavish productions uh, designed, uh, just, you know, heavy budgets, big actors. I mean, something like Game of Thrones, while you may roll your eyes at it, like has the production value of what a movie would be rather than what normally would constitute a television show. Um, and so I felt I feel like that line's been kind of broken to a bit. I feel like at least the debate between with with Twin Peaks, the return kind of is a good starting point for that. So um Michael, I'm gonna start with you. I know that you you made your debut in the cinematary with your letter about that episode. Um, so I guess a couple years removed. I mean, what what do you what do you make of the of the kind of discussion of whether something is movie or television, and uh, kind of where Twin Peaks: The Return falls in all this? I mean, I think on that initial review or episode in which I didn't actually appear, but I had written a lengthy comment on Cinematary's website um, that was read, um, and I made the case that you know, Twin Peaks The Return is a television show because it has an episodic format and, you know, it's, a, you know, the kind of t- typical arguments for it being television. And so, like, I think, and we were talking about this off mic or, or before we started recording, I should say, um, that there's kind of one conversation that happens that's frustrating regarding this, which is that if something is good enough, uh, then it becomes cinema, cinema as opposed to television. And I think some some of that has happened with the Twin Peaks the return and no one's trying to claim like you know um that the i don't know like like a season of 24 even though it's highly serialized and in the style of like the you know born movies and etc you know no one's trying to claim that 24 is a movie uh because it doesn't have that prestige attached to it um and so i think that that's kind of a frustrating and and uh somewhat a gatekeepy argument for like what should be television and movies and um no one or people typically don't say it, but it's always it's kind of implied a lot of times in these conversations. So I, I don't think 
Twin Peaks, the return is television because of how good or bad it is. Um, but also one of the more interesting things um, to come out of this decade is uh, how this kind of represents like a blurring of distribution um, and, and how people consume media. And I think that that's a really interesting conversation. You know, um, if a movie like The Irishman um, gets released on Netflix and very few people have a chance to see it in a theater, and most people, you know, people might watch it in more than one sitting, and it's the length of, like, let's say, like, a season of, like, American Vandal or something like that, which is, quote-unquote, a television series. Like, does that change the medium that we consider that that is? Um, and Twin Peaks has kind of that that blur a little bit because uh, several of its episodes debuted at, did you guys say it was Cam? Right, and so, like, you had, like, mm-hmm. several episodes watched back-to-back at a film festival, um, does that mean it changes from tele? Is it still television when it does that? I, and I think that that's a really interesting and unresolved conversation. You know, something like OJ Made in America has the same quality, which I think that was twenty sixteen, not twenty seventeen. That was last year, yeah. Yeah, but regardless, like I, I believe that screened in its entirety at a film festival, but also of course was a thirty for thirty special, um, and so that that makes like really interesting discussions as far as what does the medium of cinema mean, you know, cause if you go back 30 years, well, television is what you watch through the television and cinema is what you watch at the cinema. But I think, mm-hmm. that especially in the 2010s with streaming and digital distribution and stuff like that, it's not nearly so cut and dry. Um, I mean, I still think Twin Peaks The Return is television, but it does kind of uh, bait those sort of conversations. It it does because I I think that you made a good point that it kind of is gatekeepery. Like, um, I I think that w- whether we want to admit it or not, we kind of look at it on, uh, like you just described it, where television is like, you know, I love Lucy, uh, Andy Griffith show, all in the family. Like it's that it's that kind of escape <laughs> escapey type. You watch it at, at home on your television. You're not really you're engaging with it, but it's not really taking the amount of uh, of like mental power that you you would if you were like in the movie theater, like where you're like outside a little bit of your comfort zone. You're you're away from your house. You've like gone to a location in order to engage with a you know a piece of uh, of culture and um, like that. And that's and that was my whole thing. Like I if if you want to call Twin Peaks the return again which i have not watched if you want to call it movies <laughs> that's fine i think i think my my whole gripe then and my whole gripe now still is uh if if is th- there's just multiple ways to you know tell a narrative and so if the goal for twin peaks the return was to watch it all in one sitting i feel like he probably would have made it in that fashion like i don't think it's not like it was something where mm-hmm. it's like netflix where he would have chopped like he got forced to chop it up um i think that there is something that you know he's trying to set up maybe psychologically in terms of your viewing pattern to have to separate the episodes and watch them you know once a week in that kind of succession because sometimes you know sometimes stories just are more effective that way um i think about kind of comparing it this this might be you know way off the reservation but i think of it like how we engage with something like a video game compared to a movie because video games are constantly trying to emulate the kind of movie going experience when what you um get most out of playing a video game is kind of that immersion into this world where it kind of it's it's giving you like the 
it's giving you the control of the narrative rather than kind of watching it passively on on a screen like you would with a television show or a movie and so i feel like the argument between tv or movie kind of comes down to a misunderstanding on how the narrative structures structures of both work where one is a kind of continuous you know one sitting type experience while the other is kind of a fragmented experience because the 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 author of it was you know purposefully doing that um dylan do you have anything to add yeah uh um so i mean to kind of like consider both uh different things that both you michael and zach that you've brought up um it's interesting that you bring up kind of like older like 50s 60s comedies like i love lucy andy griffith uh you know the honeymooners these kind of things that those are of a sitcom format right they're like a tight like 30 you know so and those two have to like take into account of advertisements in the middle of them that movies don't have to take in consideration and so sometimes with sitcoms that as soon as they come back from com- commercial they have to like easily summarize what's been going on if you either hadn't seen the first part or just forget because you got blasted with ads for like five minutes um and, but no that's that's an interesting thing then to consider when thinking about the melding of production and distribution as it stands now michael that you've brought up to where it's not quite like that anymore uh there's still tv programming such as it is but now that you can strip it out of that context and put it on the internet and i mean you still like even going back and watching the original run two seasons of twin peaks on netflix you still get those like hard fade out moments that you give a tv that you know are supposed to lead you into an advertisement but you can watch them in such a quick succession that um there was no way you could do that even when it first came on you'd have to tape it right or some way of like actually putting it and keeping it on for yourself as opposed to being able to just finding all of it on the internet in a quick quick small space um and so um but to to this point though uh with lynch talking about what he was thinking with twin peaks with mark frost that he really enjoyed the idea of it being a TV show. This notion that a lot of people came around their television every week to watch a continuous story. And I mean, at a certain point, he really held like a love and affection for the whole setting of Twin Peaks and the town and all the characters. And, you know, there's a lot to be said that all of those machinations and all those characters, it's really hard to actually wear up a machine like that with something as limited in time and scope as movies is. I mean, uh, one of the first things that come to mind that can, got close to it is maybe like Margaret, but even then, like, you know, that as a movie is still contained and like, even with the extended cut, like three hours. So, um, but to that point though, that Lynch specifically set out to make it as a TV show and appreciated the notion of episodes and, you know, everybody gathering around every week to do it. Um, but it gets a tricky notion though, because he is a prominent filmmaker and as we said, that it was first two episodes were shown at Cannes, that um, the production of this actual show, it happened all at once and it was written all at once while older TV shows are written week by week. And it's hard to gauge what it's going to be like, other than the fact that we have like these handful of characters that we know we can just spin the wheels on. So um, I feel like I just just blurred the can of worms again to mix a metaphor, but... <laughs> Yeah. Well, not not Yeah. 
No, I under I understand mm-hmm. what you're saying, and and I think that's and that's why I say like if you if you want to see it as as a movie, that's fine. Like I, mm-hmm. but I I don't think that there should be a disregard for like the TV model of thing. I don't think if if Twin Peaks Return was TV, mm-hmm. you know, is TV or was TV or no. whatever. And, like I don't think that makes it lesser. I think that it, it's yeah. it's all it's all about like what it's trying to do in terms yeah. of you know telling the narrative and there's something i think he, he i think lynch is correct that there is something interesting about like that i mean because I, I i definitely felt it like mm-hmm. watching through the run of like breaking bad where you see the episode you know one day a week and then you just have like that whole week to kind of like break it down and discuss it and kind of just sit there and ponder on it before the next week when the next one will come out i think there is something like useful about that rather you know there's something useful about sitting there and just experiencing it all at once as this kind of main you know like this one amalgamation but i think there's also something interesting about kind of breaking it up in that fashion it's uh it's worth mentioning that it does i mean as much as you you did compare marvel to to television earlier but the conversation rarely goes the other way you know we had a breaking bad movie this year and then like several years ago we had a veronica mars movie and no one was trying to make the argument that they were television (laughs) Um, it usually is only going one way, which is that this television show is actually a movie, um, which I think I think like speaks to the fact that a lot of times these conversations sometimes happen in bad faith and are really just talking about we really sure. like this thing but we don't watch enough television and so we want to claim this as the thing we normally well, that's, watch. And, and that's why I say I agree, I agree with you that it's very gatekeepery because but this is like not something that's just um, new to movies and television. I mean it's it's any any sort of you know art form or you know, culture device has always had this where the, the, you know, the first one, I mean, you know, oral, oral stories <laughs> led to books, books to, to, to theater, you know, like, like, I think there's just constantly this, you know, that if you look at just the, the string of narrative through the course of human history, we always have where you kind of have this gatekeeper uh, mentality for the thing that came before you. And so it's nothing new, but at the same time, I think that, the only way to break that is to kind of find an appreciation for for what the other is doing in terms of its mode. Um, Ash, I, I want to. Do you have any thoughts or feelings about this whole uh, concept of the movie or TV or just Twin Peaks in general? Um. Yeah. I mean, you guys have um, covered most of my general thoughts on it. Generally, it's TV. It's really good. It's better than a lot of movies. Um, but it's it's still television and that doesn't, you know, make it worse. I think just the thing for me is that um like for some film people just like we're talking about just different types of like mediums or forms and for some reason a lot of um like cinephiles are just obsessed with like film as like the like highest form or the highest medium and I don't really think that well I certainly don't view that as being the case and I think that you know whatever medium you need to use to like best tell the story is the best medium and so like um David Lynch obviously an incredible filmmaker makes a television show it's an awesome television show, you know, he's doing what he does best, but he's doing it in a different form just because he wants to do a different form. And just because he thinks that the story that he needs to tell will do better in that form. And I think that he's successful in that. And so it's like, I remember when 
um, you know, you're talking about like the superhero movies and how they're like episodic and stuff. And it's like, they're doing exactly, um, what they're, you, you know, they're sort of executing their idea. Their form is not to create like an incredible work of art that is episodic in nature and keeps going on and on and on. Their <laughs> form is just to keep making money and they're successful but, um, you know, I think the first instance of me sort of thinking about this was when, like, the Hobbit movies came out, like, way back when. I was like, I don't remember when the first one came out, but I just remember watching it, and it was way too long, first of all. And, <laughs> and it was only, like, they split the whole book into three. And I was like, this movie, I was like first of all, this is only one third of the movie and it's so dragged out. I was like, this could have been one movie, you know? And it was just like the complete wrong form. It, it was either the wrong form or they were just dragging it out, you know, like the superhero movies just, um, to make more money off of it, just to sort of linger in the, um, in the audience or whatever. But yeah, that's basically my two cents. Um, it's TV, but it's really good. <laughs> um, um, I mean, and just a, just a last thought off of what Ash, uh, you said, um, and, and then what makes Twin Peaks The Return just particularly exciting in its own way then, and Zach, something you've also brought up is this kind of tension between a continuous story versus a fragmented one between movies and television, that it ends up playing into that in an interesting way with all the point of views of different characters and literally messing with the perception of time and space inside of it. So you don't really need to dig too far down into the themes of that show to get that. So that's a, uh, thanks for bringing that up. Well, kind of shifting from uh, movies or TV to what something that's much more strictly a movie. Uh, I think the <laughs> one movie that I would like to talk about just kind of on its own for this year is Phantom Thread. Uh, I know we, we, I think we've talked about it extensively. If you look back at our backlog for, for 2017, probably, um, <laughs> but this was, this was easily my favorite movie from 2017. Uh, I rewatched it the other day to kind of prep, you know, for the episode and the, the thing I kind of, uh, to, to toss it off to everybody else. The thing that I was thinking about while watching this, that I f- feel like is, is something that Paul Thomas Anderson does uh, for the most part in his movies, I mean, I think that there is kind of a historical or like a locational context to his movies. I mean, mm-hmm. like even Inherent Vice in the in the, most of the Master and um, Boogie Nights for sure kind of has this context. But something about Phantom Thread I was thinking is it really has no... Um, it really has no like historical or locational context to it. I mean, you're, he's in London, but it's not like it's tied to any. It's not like like it's one of those movies where some larger events happening in the background. Like you kind of could put this in most any other metropolis, you know, metropolitan city, and it would and it would work. Um, but it it's just like this movie and this narrative that's completely living in its own uh, time, place, and space that. I feel like that's the that's the thing that at least for me 
um, while watching this most this watching it this most recent time was like the most alluring, like mm. transfixing fixing factor of it was that it just was living on its own terms in its own world and. I feel like that's just a quality that more movies, that at least the, the the good movies, are able to find. I think that we could probably say the same about you know Twin Peaks, which we were just the return that we we're just talking about. That uh, Phantom Thread just really lives in its own space, and I felt like that's the thing that kind of made it so um, unique in that way. I mean, what what do you guys make of that movie? Kind of looking back at it two years later, uh, I think it's great. Yeah, same. <laughs> Um, I'm interested though, Zach, of this notion you're talking about space like this, that um, maybe just because the score is so effective and the characters feel such on their own, but I I, I would hesitate though to say that it doesn't have a specific context that it's working in. I mean, so much of that can feel like on the periphery or when it does start kind of bubbling up to the surface that it feels like uh, uh, more uncomfortable or soon to be shooed away. Like, you know, the fact that Alma's character is, you know, Jewish and these kinds of racial tensions or ethnic tensions that are happening with uh, some more of the side characters with uh, Woodcock and her being together. But um, it does feel very specifically of a time and place, but because when it was made and how effective it is that it can feel, I don't know, I guess, you know, uh, (laughs) contemporary, but yet also... uh, ethereally forever or whatever if well, isn't the daniel day lewis's character his style like isn't part of the thing his style is kind of out of time like or out of pace with like whatever contemporary styles are going on and so like he as a character is sort of adrift in time yeah they were in that way yeah <laughs> he was freaking about a being chic you want to use that nasty <laughs> word chic yeah and then his sister like immediately shuts him down <laughs> like well that's what pays the bills woodcock so you know Quit your shit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, no, Dylan. I, I guess to, to to your point, like, I, I, I get that, and I think that there, of course, there are like these, uh, you know, factors, you know, that work within the narrative that are linked to something happening, mm-hmm. you know, in, in in kind of the locational context. But at the same time, it, I guess. I guess you used a good word to describe it. It kind of works on this. Uh, it, it doesn't really feel like it has a place because it's kind of contemporary, but it also feels like it's working in this, you know, ethereal space because it, you know, it, it's not like a movie where it's like, uh, you know, Reynolds Woodcock is a, uh, is a fashion designer and, you know, in the, in the twilight of, of world war two, you know, it's sure. not like it, it has sure. this, sure. it's not like it has this very kind of typical, um, you know, kind of, even like the Irishman this year, it's like you like you have like the the context of like the Kennedy presidency and 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 things of that nature that kind of it it doesn't you know completely overrun the narrative, but it like kind of informs a lot of the decision making and and you know uh, narrative uh, beats that the that the that the plot kind of goes in and Phantom Thread since it lives in kind of this um, I mean it, it feels like like the the entire area that he's encompassing is just kind of in this bubble that's there but not really there and so that's 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 kind of what i was thinking yeah. about on this most recent rewatch or, or when it does i mean as you say that um the specific instance i have in mind is um uh, that wedding that he has to go to he makes a dress for this woman's wedding who apparently he's bankrolling a lot of uh 
a lot of their um, bu- 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 you know work right that uh, I believe it's a countess or something like that but she's getting married and they end up like in a press room where she gets grilled with a lot of questions while they're well Woodcock and Alma are on the sideline uh, just watching in and it feels you know uh, something that could happen now uh, but yet yeah, talking about countesses and more like this kind of elite royalty situation so it doesn't it yet doesn't feel it's both specific and not it's i mean i guess that's kind of a blurring thing uh and i guess specifically a function of a, a romance movie which is definitely is <laughs> you know if it, like trying to generate this uh, etherealness or kind of floating possibility i don't know uh ash what are, what are your feelings on phantom thread uh, a couple years after it came out um so it's really funny i actually saw this movie it was uh i think a bunch of us went to see it right when it came out and i remember leaving the theater really frustrated and i did not like it Mm. and i remember getting into a big argument with andrew in the um foyer of the theater um about this movie um (laughs) there were raised voices it was (laughs) sorry it, it got kind of ugly yeah um but then as time went by and the uh, um, Phantom Thread out of context Twitter, you know, seeped <laughs> onto my, <laughs> seeped onto my timeline. Please, yes. Um, I was enticed to watch it again. And let me tell you, uh-huh. every time I've watched it again, I have fallen more in love with this movie. Wow. I think the real um, kicker was I the first time I watched it I I was just like demanding to myself that like I hated the characters that I just like I hated the protagonist and uh. I didn't understand any of the characters and I just uh like you know I j- was just disgusted with them mm-hmm. and then the more that I the more time I spent with this movie the more I realized that I I was the protagonist and that i just needed to you know find someone to make me some mushrooms and, <laughs> um, make me a mushroom omelet take please care of me. oh and my a mushroom omelet and take uh-huh. care of me and um i think this is the most possibly the most like romantic movie i've ever seen i love it so much um honestly relationship goals I'm I'm really like interested to hear that the Twitter bot or the the grab of no context uh, worked for you in that in that yeah, way because it really did yeah. do a lot for me. I think the first time I saw the movie, I just I didn't I couldn't see the humor in it. Thank you. Yeah. Uh-huh, so uh-huh. funny. And, yeah, and, yeah. And then the more time I spent with it, I was like, "This is hilarious." <laughs> I was like, "This is the." This is the funniest movie I've ever seen. So and also, much. everyone in this movie is also me. And, and I hate it. And I love it. <laughs> and it's oh, perfect. Yeah. I, I uh, really enjoyed in this rewatch of like really following the serial character, uh, uh, Woodcock's sister, right? Because... Um, uh, like I guess if we're having to think of this as like kind of a triangle between these three characters at least that uh, her like really at that breakfast table 
you could really start feeling where her character is like really working <laughs> just like yeah. how much yeah. the camera like almost shifts to her point of view uh at that table because sometimes like Wacock, you know, he may say something, but he's like usually off to that side of the table while the camera is kind of more at the uh, at the other end, and just like Cyril kind of commands the camera with her eyes is uh, interesting. Um, and yeah, uh, and it was funny. Like I didn't. I also the first time I watched it didn't really see it as a romantic movie. Sure. At all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then. I don't know now I just have this fondness in my heart for it and the other day um you know Twitter has been ablaze with all of the marriage story discourse uh, uh-huh. and um so I um added added to that and and said marriage story but it's just in uh, a couple si- or quietly disagreeing about what to eat for dinner <laughs> and and Nathan responded to me and said, that's Phantom Thread. <laughs> and I, I was like, you know what? You're actually right. <laughs> uh, you know how I like my asparagus with salt and oil? What is this, butter? Oh, my God. <laughs> it's just uh. like, it's a very, uh, it's a very wholesome, it's not wholesome at all, <laughs> but, but it's, I'm, I'm fond of it. <laughs> there you go. Uh, I want to shift. We got a couple topics that we can probably get to. Uh, we've, you know, eaten some amount of time with our uh, omelets and, and mushrooms for sure. But uh, <laughs> I, I feel like one movie we'd be remiss not to talk about is Get Out, which came out in 2017. And I felt like mm-hmm. it's been kind of, uh, I think, one, it's a, uh, it's a big... Um, it's, it's kind of a an intersection that from a topic that we talked about a few weeks ago. We were talking about the elevated horror topic. Uh, and I think that this is kind mm-hmm. of an, interse- an intersection between the concept of elevated horror uh, with kind of a more big budget, like, you know, multiplex type uh movie i think you know get out kind of has the all the uh the degrees of like what you would assume what we would classify as elevated horror but does it in like it was like a you know a massive you know box office hit it also uh kind of affirmed blumhouse as like this powerhouse kind of production company which was you know taking the very age-old model of uh low budget horror that uh you know if it turns a big profit then it's you know a big win for them and it also you know cemented jordan peele as kind of this driver of uh you know he 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 became kind of the horror auteur for on like kind of a larger scale i mean even us which um i felt like was a little bit more mixed in terms of reviews uh compared to get out still was a big hit and is, is still being kind of talked about now at the at the end of the tail end of the year and so i guess looking back at it for you all what what about Get Out kind of stays with you outside of just the movie? I mean, does do any of those kind of points um, strike you as, as something that's still uh, taking a hold of kind of the culture at large or the movie culture uh, in 2019? Well, I think uh, Get Out's interesting in that it's one of the rare movies that's not a, you know, not like a Marvel or Star Wars or kind of these movies that have built in sure, yeah. like, massive audiences. Well. But it it's, it's one of those ones that, like, I feel like, totally had a like a huge like zeitgeisty impact on like how people talk um about the world um and i feel like that 
this decade. I mean, I'm, I'm, we don't need to rehash this yet again, but like, you know, television did that quite a bit this, this decade, whereas film less so outside of like, you know, Marvel and, and that sort of thing. And, uh, I think get out is just a really interesting example of like the, you know, that film can still have that, that moment. And I think, you know, also bolstered by like, um, get out has sort of like a meme presence um in a lot of ways you know like um animated gifs of get out like show up frequently the the sunken place becomes you know became kind of like a a concept that is like talked about quite a bit especially online um and it's just interesting as a movie that like in some ways is really classical like it has all these like old horror movie illusions like uh stepford wives and that sort of thing but in another way like the way that people responded to it was in such a thoroughly modern um, modern way and, and a way that like hit so many people in, in so many different ways, you know, I think like, you know, that line, um, just, there's just like some throwaway lines that just feel like became discourses unto them, unto themselves, you know, like how the guys like, I would have voted for Obama for a third term and how that, that one line just became indicative of like a whole like subset of like, like a classification of like, uh, conversations that people have. Um, and I just think that's really interesting because I, you know, I, I talk about movies a lot on the internet and with on Cinematary or whatever, but as far as like my day-to-day life, I don't have that many movie conversations with people, but Get Out is absolutely a movie that like everyone I knew, including people who weren't that into movies, was talking about, and that's, that was, that's such a rare experience for me. Um, I mean, to, to that last point though, Michael, is, uh, would just be how can even a director, uh, Jordan Peele is though, right? I mean, that phrase... Uh, itself was I don't think generated by the movie but it you know catapulted it or like propagated it out a lot faster as as like a meme like quality as you say um, that I think is interesting but that it's like able to movie, tie both as like the Obama line yeah I think like the movie contextualizes that yeah, sort of line sure. though like mm-hmm. as far as like you know it's ultimately the villain who's who says this and, you know, <laughs> the, the kind of uh-huh. uh, I don't know the you know whatever we don't have to get in, like too much into politics but there's there's definitely like a, a subset of like you know when we talk about the democratic primaries that is defined by that um that line and a lot mm-hmm. of the the divides as far as like how people view the world you know have you know yeah function so, along those lines you know how you know you know how you posture yourself uh toward like you know certain um historical moments as opposed to actually posturing yourself toward like you know actual substantive change yeah, I mean, but but to that point, I, I, I meant it specifically as how much he was able to weave in what is, you know, whatever easily considered quote-unquote genre trappings, but, you know, making it have this immediate resonance, right? It's like he has the history of these other movies behind him that he can use as, like, resonators to actually bring in that more whatever feels potentially quote-unquote more contemporary context, even though, you know, that was there almost all along. Right, I don't know. If we're that, talking about that makes any sense. do you guys feel like... Mm-hmm. I mean, so Get Out, Zach, you brought it up in the context of elevated horror. Um, I to, to me, Get Out feels like an anomaly in the sense that it broke out of elevated horror to become like this cultural thing. And I'm trying to think of any sort of other examples of, you know, elevated horror that felt like this much of like outside of that own... Like, is this the only one that really like broke out of that, that realm? I, I I would say so because even something like like hereditary hereditary had a I don't know how much of like a 
you know how much out of like the the cinephile kind of circle would that have had an, it didn't really have an impact i mean get out was something that not only people who were like interested in movies were watching but like everybody was watching this movie i mean this was a a, a massive a massive hit and so but i feel like it kind of also carries uh very uh you know d- distinct features of kind of that elevated horror just in the way that peel goes around um in terms of uh, just kind of very technical things, like the way he shoots uh, various scenes, I mean, it kind of has that. Uh, it ha- it seems like it has more of a thought process in terms of the alignment of shots and the, the production design, the art design, and all of this than your typical like horror movie that's made to be like a, a like a big movie. I think we only think of Get Out as kind of this like box office hit blockbuster now because it became one but when it was being designed it was being designed on the same level as, as like a happy death day or like the conjuring like it, it was on it was very i was kind of on this very like medium level but it just elevated itself too so that's why i, th- I think it's probably the the best example of like an, a, a movie with the techniques of like an elevated horror rising above um kind of that rank I just think I think that's interesting because I think like one of the backhanded ways people sometimes describe elevated horror is, is that they're horror movies for people who don't like horror movies, you know, but like in the end, like I don't think that they reach much of an audience outside of horror movie people um, uh, or, or cinephiles or, or, you know, that kind of crowd. Whereas, you know, this one, I mean, like you mentioned, what did kind of break out, which, you know, maybe um, that's just interesting to me. The other, th- the the other thing, and this one I don't think we'll have as many thoughts on, uh, so we can kind of get to it quick. I, I do want to talk about how the, the fact that like Stephen King has taken over uh, a lot of culture, not not only just movies but TV as well. Like both are, are infected with Stephen King fever. Uh, twenty, I mean, twenty seventeen is the year that it came out. Of course, <laughs> that was like a massive uh, hit. I don't think the second one really had the same impact as the first one did, but the first one kind of was another one of those big blockbuster horror movies from the year um michael you mentioned that you have the show castle rock that comes out um you know the, the, the television series you have um it seems like the just kind of grabbing even like smaller stephen king things this is the, i saw that gerald's game the the movie on netflix came out the same year uh, i mean in this in, is this when stranger things came out because stranger things is heavily infected this with, and this uh, is stephen and this king. is also around the time that stranger things comes out and so i i think that stranger things is definitely the kind of jumping off point for this uh warped 80s nostalgia that but that it's not only just Stephen King, but also like Spielberg and, and, and people like that. But I feel like Stephen King still has like kind of um, really like it, it just seems like there's this this craving in the culture to see his stuff, you know, brought to life. I mean, as recently as Dr. Sleep a couple weeks ago. Um, I mean, do you, do you all have any any thoughts on uh, I, I guess why out of 80s culture, which has been mined so deeply over the past decade, why Stephen King has kind of been the, I would say like the leader in most content mined from his, uh, from his, uh, you know, body of work. I mean, I think part of it is just that he has the most content period. I mean, I'm looking at his wicked like bibliography and there's, there's <laughs> well over 50 novels that he's written. Um, yeah. but I think another thing too, is that like, um, on the book side of things like you know of course Stephen King has been writing all along but like starting in the 2010s his novels um 
I don't know if they were better received, but I think that they definitely were more, I guess they were better received, you know, so something like Under the Dome or 112263, which were both like at the very beginning of this decade. Um, I remember, because I've been a Stephen King reader for quite some time, but I definitely remember a lot of people, like including my dad being like, hey, Stephen King books are good again. Um, and, and I think that that like kind of, in a way, like made Stephen King more popular. Because like before that, you had things like Duma Key or like, the Colorado Kid or Cell, like, which aren't particularly, like, well-liked Stephen King books, um, and definitely don't have, like, big adaptations, you know, if you think of, like, the big Stephen King adaptations, they're, like, 90s and, and older, um, and so I think there's, like, this dry spell in the 2000s where Stephen King, both as a writer, but also as, like, things adapted from his work kind of went into remission, uh, and then, like, uh, when his books started getting a little bit more more popular again um because i think he maybe had some inspiration um then uh i think the the adaptations kind of followed and that that happened to coincide with a lot of the you know uh generation x nostalgia as well um so you know i mean eleven twenty two sixty three and under the dome were both made into tv series um uh you know i'm trying to i'm looking through some of the other ones too um but i i, I do think it coincides with his career as a novelist do do we think his uh i mean this is might be a small thing but he's kind of like a cool guy on twitter do, do we think his twitter presence has anything to do with his um uh, <laughs> i don't know stephen king is cool again i mean i think they're i think you're on to something yeah because i think that people keeping himself in um, conversation is that a I think people are able to like reinvent a reinvent their I hate the word but they like reinvent their brand through like how they're interacting online um I mean I I know people who are like yay Stephen King because he's you know thumbing it up to the president constantly you know it's like like it, it, it's like a simple thing like that but um I th- I think there is something to um you know having a a online persona that uh is appealing to large swaths of people and in turn makes them become much more uh infatuated with your with your work unfortunately that's a stupid thing to happen but um <laughs> uh, I mean, I think also, like, some of the Stephen King, um, you know, his, his staying power as a cultural figure is, like, really tied to, like, the older adaptations that get a little bit of a revival this decade. So you also had the Carrie remake um, in, was that, like, 2013? Oh, and I yeah. think, like, that did less to establish that remake, but more to reestablish the, like, Carrie narrative as, like, an important narrative that, like, cultural kind of folk folktale almost you know um that people really enjoy and so like i think the de palma film kind of had a had a kind of a return to prominence you know and because of that and i you know i think i I think a lot of his stories have a um have a sort of rich like um mutability to them where people can get a lot of interesting things out of them and he's always been like a guy with like interesting big ideas uh, in a way that sets him apart from like, I don't know, like Dean Koontz or like other, you know, uh, kind of paperback genre writers. Um, and I think that that makes his work easily transporting 
or easy to transport to other eras too, um, with some, something like carry um, or the stand or, or, or things like that are, you can look back at those old adaptations and find things in them that can be recontextualized for the 2010s in, in uh, powerful ways. Yeah. Um, any, uh, real quickly, any shout outs to 2017 movies that you feel like should earn some love? I'd just like to say real quickly, Columbus. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, good time. Uh, personal shopper. Yeah. Like both of those, uh, uh, Ladybird, that's gonna, that's a thing with uh, both uh, a lot of people coming up with a, another movie this year. Uh, Jordan Peele with us and uh, uh, Greta Gerwig has Little Women and coming I'm out so real soon, right? Uh, with good so. time. Uh, there's a new Star yeah. Wars movie Ooh. coming out. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, this was the year of uh, yeah. Yeah, The Last Jedi, <laughs> uh, which true. is the best Star Wars movie ever made, so that's strange. <laughs> Thank you. <so. laughs> <laughs> why would they do that they made the best one it's fine i know they made the best one whatever <laughs> uh, all right well i you know one movie from 2017 that people don't talk about a lot that i really like mm-hmm. and again this is a director who also has a movie out this year um uh wonderstruck which is a todd haynes yeah movie, um, never ended up watching which i think it's yeah. like a really beautiful movie but no one talks about it it, it has it's like the weird like forgotten todd haynes movie and um, he's also coming out with a <laughs> movie, Dark Waters, right? That that came out recently. Yeah, that will probably also be forgotten, uh, um, huh. given what I've seen. But uh, Wonderstruck is is just like a really really beautiful little movie. It's like a kids movie, but it's like an art house kids movie. I don't know if kids would actually like Wonderstruck. I, <laughs> I thought it was cool. I'll but... be honest. I I've watched Wonderstruck and remember being bored. <laughs> I also don't remember much from that movie. Oh, well, yeah. I think it's good. The end. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Just divide. Well, I, well, I believe uh, that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary, on Twitter at handle at cinematary, on Instagram at handle at cinematary, and on Letterbox at letterbox.com slash cinematary, where we uh, post all the movies that we talked about in this episode. Of course, as you can also support Cinematary on Patreon, patreon.com slash cinematary. Uh, we've, uh, we'll have a new film theory and chill episode coming out uh, very soon for your, so if you want to escape the uh, holidays for a little while, you can listen to us talking about uh, Tomas Elsesser, uh, the late film uh, historian and writer. But uh, yeah, so we got a lot of great stuff there on the Patreon page. Um, another decade podcast that I did with uh, my newsreel co-host Brian Welk is on there so if you want to listen to me talk about a number of the movies that we talked about in this episode um, including Phantom Thread you can listen to that uh, but thank you to our patrons Cam, Chad Newsom, Christina Daughtry Chris Metcalf, Cindy Roberts Into Moth, uh, Graham Jones Harry Eskin, Maggie, Marie Barty uh, Matthew Lingo um, Ron Hayes Tyler Chandler, Whitney Real Ross thank you so much for supporting the website go over to cemetery.com right now we have reviews of Six Underground by Michael Bay Marriage Story uh, so check it out there um, but yeah next week we will be heading into 2018 we're, we're, we're getting close to wrapping this thing up so uh, we'll see you then